guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys. Now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hey guys, welcome back to the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. This is your host, Melissa, and I am back for another episode of Women and Wine. Tonight, we've got another episode featuring some badass women in history. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. People are far more likely to check out new podcasts when their friends recommend it. So tell your mom, your grandma, your aunt, your best friend, your teacher, literally everybody that you know. Shout it out on your email list. Post it on social. Share it with the entire universe. And I will love you forever. It's honestly podcast money. Like instead of buying something or paying for something, sharing and subscribing and rating and reviewing is like the best thing that you can do in podcast world. So if you haven't yet, stop by Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star rating and a review and show your support for the show because I would really appreciate it and that would be super, super, super awesome. All right. Well, now let's get on to the fun stuff. I have a really, really awesome guest for tonight's show, almost like my doppelganger, but not really. (laughs) She is the creator of Feminist Cocktail Hour, which is a super cool YouTube show, very similar to this podcast, where she tells the life stories of really awesome women in history while drinking an abundance of booze. And her name is JC Powers. Hi, JC. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. This is so exciting. I, You're my first guest who knows the deal. Like, it's almost like you're on your own show tonight. It's just you aren't <laughs> being filmed. Yes, it's, a very, it's very similar. When I saw your Instagram account, I was like, we are sisters from different misters. We are, you know, cut from the same cloth. Yeah, except for, I have to say, you are a little bit more brave because (laughs) I would be so nervous getting all dolled up, putting on a cute little themed outfit, and, you know, being an actual host recorded on live YouTube for everybody to see, like... Oh my God. I mean, the amount of effort you put into your shows, it's absolutely phenomenal. Like the women that you've covered, the themes that you've done, the way you coordinate your cocktails, I'm just blown away. So like fucking props to you because I hide behind (laughs) the screen and no one sees me and I am in a little dungeon and I just speak into a mic and I'm like, this is me. You don't know who I am and that's perfect. So yeah, I'm props to you. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been, it's actually been a blast. Um, in my, in my real life, when it's not COVID times, I'm an actor and I'm a writer. So I think that like, this is, this is old hat for me. Um, I'm also obviously someone who keeps a lot of clothing. If you watch my series, (laughs) you will see that like, I have, I have to date, um, not purchased anything for my my series i borrowed one costume one of my most recent episodes i did um the all-american girls baseball professional baseball league and i did borrow 
that ba- the Rockford Peaches uniform from a friend. Yep. But everything else is from my very own closet, and uh, and nothing has been purchased for the purposes. I I just pull it together from the recesses of my of my closet. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, mean you've got a pretty nice closet too. <laughs> I, I do, I do. My closet isn't bad. It's also where I record things from. So you, you know, it's it's multifunctional. It's, it's it's multi-purpose. I'm I'm pleased with it. And in New York, it's it's a luxury to be able to keep as much clothing as I do. Well, yeah, it's funny, guys, because JC's currently in her closet and we're recording, and so I, I'm witnessing all the beautiful patterns and dresses behind her right now. It's very, very snazzy. You can see the different ladies, too. You can see, like, you know, Jane Seymour, and you can see Hedy Lamar and Lucille Ball. They're all just, like, hanging in my closet Oh, my God, behind I me. love it. So I had watched one of your your shows earlier today, and I heard that you mentioned you used to be or still are on Broadway. Is that like how you kind of got into all of this? I'm an off-Broadway actor, I should be clear. But for sure, I, I definitely um, got into this, I think, because of my theatrical background. Also, my background as a writer. Um, I've written a few plays and, and musicals that have been produced here in New York City. I think also just like the way I process, uh, I hate to use such a heavy word, but the way I process trauma is definitely through, uh, you know, being a performer. So um, seven years ago now, a long time ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was in my mid-20s. And my first web series was actually a response to that. I had a web series called That Time I Had Cancer, where I chronicled my experience. It was a scripted series, not a docu-series. And I chronicled, with sort of a humorous edge, my experiences having um, breast cancer as a woman in my mid-20s. And in during that time period, it really just felt like a way of... A kind of catharsis. It felt like a way of sharing my story, but also... Uh, dissecting my own narrative as it was going on one part therapy and like one part entertainment for others and I and and a third part I guess like information for others the most gratifying part about that time I had cancer was hearing from other cancer survivors and patients who related to what I was going through so when COVID happened um I got this idea I was on the phone with my friend Elise and we were talking about you know things that we're passionate about things that inspire us. And this idea kind of came about. I've always been a big lover of parties. I throw a lot of parties. I love a theme party. And for me, Feminist Cocktail Hour is sort of a weekly or in the beginning daily uh, theme party where I get to like match a cocktail to an amazing story that I, you know, found inspiring. And I guess part of it too, and I think a lot of people have talked about this during COVID, is that one way of coping is by seeing like, where we have been and what we have come through as a people. And a lot of the women who I've profiled are women who have come through, uh, you know, trying circumstances and come out the other side. Uh, So it's been fun and hopefully entertaining for, you know, those who've been watching uh, to have some cocktails, to tell these stories. But also there's a level of catharsis in it, a level on which, like, I'm working through, and I think everyone is working through a challenging mm-hmm. time and drinking and venting and being mm-hmm. inspired by some incredible ladies is one way of getting through it. And having fun oh, with yeah. ladies who are like, you know, some of those lighter, sillier stories too. Mm-hmm. 
I love it. It's so much fun. I mean, I just the whole costume effect as well. It's just like, ah, <laughs> uh, I'm like so jealous. I'm like, oh my god, it would be so fun to dress up as all these ladies. <laughs> um, but I just love it. Like, props to you. So so incredible just even your story of overcoming breast cancer and writing your first what, what did you say it was a um a script you said it called it was a script it's a scripted web series um a web that time series. i had okay. cured that I made yeah. cancer. You you can find it on YouTube. It is its own channel. That time I had cancer. There's a website too called That Time I Had Cancer, um, and it chronicles primarily the very beginning of my cancer journey. In part mm. because once I got several episodes in, I'll say I think I did twenty all in all. I I was in remission and sort of decided it was time to put it away rather than finish telling the story, just because that. Because I didn't want my whole life to be about yeah. breast cancer. You reach, you I know, you reach you. a point. When I was going through it, mm-hmm. it was really helpful and really cathartic. And as time went on, it became more difficult. It's also, it's really easy in my apartment um, to do a web series forever by myself <laughs> when I'm editing it and writing it. And it just right. takes me in my bar. But um, that time I had cancer was a full production. Um, it, inclu- it was directed by a close friend of mine, Regina Myers. And it featured some, like, incredible actors, some serious Broadway powerhouses. Uh, my friend Julia Murney, um, who was Elphaba on Broadway, who also appears in Feminist Cocktail Hour. She um, played my oncologist. Another amazing Broadway actor, Jay Russell, played the personification of the search engine Google. Um, <laughs> I know, Ruthie Ann Miles, who won a Tony for uh, The King and I, and is, uh, was recently on the TV series All Rise, I think is what it's called. Ruthie Ann Miles, though, she plays a sort of beleaguered Planned Parenthood uh, phone operator in one episode. So it was oh, an amazing, wow. yeah, it was an amazing group of actors who I had to get together. And, and places where we had to film, you know, mm-hmm. we were filming in hospitals when we could get, when they would let us in, which was pretty uh-huh. rare, and, and driving out to New Jersey to film in doctor's offices there or in restaurants or in, you know, sometimes my apartment, but all over. So it was, it was complicated to, um, to piece together, but it was a lot of fun while we did it. And again, like something that I still occasionally get emails on from women who have gone through those experiences, which, you know, a lot of breast cancer survivors out there, far fewer when you are under 30, um, but more than you would think. I've had Mm -hmm two good friends, one from high school and one from um, just post-college, who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and there are and they are under 35. So it, you, you gotta check your stuff, ladies. We gotta, we gotta all be careful, take care of ourselves, take care of each other because it's, it's more common than we think. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was actually just doing a bunch of research on it last month for, I believe October was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yes. Um, And I was just, like, reading up on it and just, like, you know, the statistics around it, the data they've found, like, different ways that you could, you know, check up on yourself daily, if not weekly, just the small little things you can add to your everyday routine um, just to kind of be more aware because it's just not – we aren't – it's so funny. Like, I've been having this conversation with my sister a lot lately on, like, things that we aren't told about when we're young women like sure everybody you know has the whole freak out around cancer and breast cancer but you aren't really like all right ladies like these are things you have to start doing now yeah (laughs) it's like yeah 
Um, the other thing that we keep talking about is just like how, you know, when you're young, you get put on birth control pretty young for the most part, usually. But no one ever mentions like, hey, um, your eggs are going to start dying around like 30. So um, you're going to want to like think about that. <laughs> like, you it's know. True. Like yeah, all these like, things that like end up yeah. like becoming really major yeah. crises in women's yeah. life that like yeah. either are never ever mentioned or brought up or just like barely gazed by like in your yeah. youth in like a sex yep. ed class. But like you don't ever hear about it again. That is completely true. That is completely true. That actually is something that even comes up in that time I had cancer and came up in my cancer journey because when you go through chemotherapy, that in of itself, like, kills off your eggs. So, like, I was in this weird position of, like, having to go through all of these fertility treatments at, like, 25 years old before I went through chemotherapy. And all these things that I had never thought about were suddenly big, huge questions. It's just, it's, yeah, you're exactly right. There are things that, like, we hear about, like on the periphery of things and then suddenly they're in front of you and you're like oh this was this was something that I should have been taught more about at some yeah. point well it's like all these years I've been going to the gynecologist how has this never been brought up yeah <laughs> like yeah. I mean sure they'll do like you know mammograms and stuff like that but no one has ever mentioned my eggs once in the past seven years that I've been going to a gynecologist and that's weird to me. <laughs> it's very weird. It's also such a quick, like, transition, I will tell you. As someone who, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I suspect I'm a little bit older than you. Um, I'm in my... I'm 31. I'm just a little bit older than you. Not much older than you. Um, I am I am 34. So I, I have been for years, like, saying to my oncologist specifically, well, at some point I'm going to, I want to have kids. At some point this is something I want to do. And for years she's been like, oh, no rush. Oh, not a thing. Oh, not a, and this year she was like, but soon, right? And I was like, oh, God. Okay, well, apparently the, the, the stopwatch has started. <laughs> but it happened yeah. so fast. It happened so fast because, like, there was no transition of, like, yeah, sure, I'm, I, I guess you should be thinking about that soon. It was just, like, one day it was, like, no big deal. And the next day it was, like, you should do it on Friday. Like you should. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It's, it's wild. It's really wild. Um, but yeah, totally crazy. Well, fuck, you know, for having already gone through so much in your life, like (laughs) I, I totally know. I, I'm now understanding what you meant from your first statement about starting, uh, the feminist cocktail hour, you know, all this humor and your interest in production, is a little bit of like, you know, a response to trauma, which I totally understand. Um, I myself, like, I'm not any big, you know, writer in the world, but I've always loved creative writing. And it's actually something I started doing in high school after I experienced like my first trauma. And so like I, you know, when you're young, you don't really know how to cope with stuff very well. It's like, again, another thing no one learns until you're facing it. Yeah. Um, And I had I decided like to pick up a pen and I just started writing back then. And it's been like the hugest therapy for me ever since, because, of course, I've been through so many other traumas since then. Um, But writing was always the number one thing that I went to. And then to be honest, like that sort of evolved into podcasting um, because I, I loved writing, but I think I wanted to like have my actual voice being heard. Rather than like my words being read. Um, And now here we are. So it's wild how, you know, things come full circle like that. That, you know, we go through shit. And a lot of the times, you know, the, the 
greatest way to heal from it is to just like get it out. And whether that's writing or podcasting or whatever you do, um, it really is a really powerful form of therapy and it's fucking helped me greatly in my life. And I mean, yeah. look where you are now, all these things that you've done, <laughs> like, that's amazing. It's really awesome. I will say too, like, you know, I've listened to your podcast and like really, really loved it. And as much as it's therapy perhaps for like you or therapy for me, like to, to create these things, as an audience member having taken in what you do, you know, it's definitely therapeutic for the the listener as well. Like, you know, it is wonderful to be able to escape for an hour and hear the story of someone inspiring and, and you know, sit back with a drink and relax mm-hmm. a little bit, especially in a totally. time when I think all of that, all of us need that so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I know we're drinking. I saw you holding yes. up a really, really snazzy looking martini glass over there. So what do you got? So this drink is actually a riff on a pink squirrel. Uh, I know. So the pink squirrel is an, an old cocktail. Again, my series, Feminist Cocktail Hour, is a lot about pairing cocktails with um, great ladies, interesting ladies in history and in pop culture, I should say. So the, the pink squirrel is a drink that was invented in the 1940s at Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where I am from. Uh, The lady I chose is also a Wisconsin girl, which is part of why I selected this drink in her honor. It was originally designed as an ice cream drink, although a lot of people, a lot of bars will now make it with uh, creme de cacao um, and cream as opposed to vanilla ice cream. The last ingredient in it is an obscure liqueur called creme de noyeux, which is like similar to amaretto. It's an almond flavored liqueur that's bright red in color, and that's what makes it this pink color. My twist is not exactly that. My twist is um, a cherry ice cream, a, a bright pink like cherry ice cream, a little bit of amaretto because you can't find creme de noya anywhere. And like, I, I'm a big believer in like, use what you have, you know, like mm-hmm. if you are not, I have amaretto in my bar because I love it. But <laughs> if you have like, you know, almond extract in your cabinet, that would give it that almond flavor too, just a little less boozy. Uh, there's some vodka in there, a splash of grenadine, mainly for color. And then in honor of Mimosa Sisterhood, I shifted this drink from a true milkshake to like a float. So it's topped with like a little bit of rosé, which I I had, I know, which I have questions about, but it's actually delicious. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually, it's amazing. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I, I, we've been talking for only a few minutes and I only have like a little bit left. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Well, are you, do you have like a bartending background? Like how is you so good at this? I mean, I'm an actor, so I guess we all have bartending backgrounds. Um, I definitely was certified as a mixologist when I was still in college, when I was like Mm -hmm. 20, fearing that that was going to be my, my only future. I was lucky that right out of college, I worked quite a lot as an actor so I actually didn't start bartending um until until later actually like during uh, while I was going through cancer that was a side job for me one of my best friends um used to own a a group of bars in Brooklyn one of which she co-owned with uh Jim Cramer from Mad Money the bald oh, guy shit. who's always yelling, sell, sell, sell. Yes, he was the owner of one of the bars. And um, so I, I definitely, like, brushed up that skill set, improved that skill set. And I've always been someone who loved, like, mixology on the side of things. Yeah. Again, as someone who loves to throw a party, um, mm-hmm. I, I've always loved to make a themed, a themed cocktail. 
Oh, I love it. Well, I wish I had something as good as you today, but unfortunately I really bombed with my wine pairing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. The wine looks good. I've been looking at it. I've been like, I'm done when this cocktail is done. She has a whole bottle over there. (laughs) I know. So I I like mix it up. Sometimes I drink wine, other times beer. It kind of just depends. Usually I pair with like, I try to like get it on brand with whoever I'm covering, but like I told you, well, no one else knows, but I got really sick this weekend. And so when I would have gone out and like you know had time to like pick the perfect wine pairing for my lady I was I literally just got out of bed this morning and I was like I have to just drink this rosé that we have in the house um but I I first of all I'm obsessed with this bottle but unfortunately this wasn't a winner (laughs) it's not like horrible but anyway it's a Fior Rosé it's called Fior Rosa, and it's a Pinot Grigio Rosé. It's a Italian oh. Pinot Grigio Rosé, but it almost has, like, a little bit of, like, a bitter finish to it. Sure. And um, it's not the most pleasant rosé I've ever had. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me. That bitter finish is the opposite of what you want, right? You want something yeah. that's going to, like, have that light kind of yeah and and they're they're trying to tell you that it's like a really beautiful summer fruit flavors perfect for a picnic and you know i'm just not feeling it but i will be drinking this bottle so (laughs) there will be no wine wasted tonight um but it's not my favorite rosé so so maybe i just don't like italian rosés i don't know but it's it's not my favorite but i will be drinking it for this episode and I'm, you know, it's just going to have to be what it is. So we're making it work. Um, okay. Well, I think I'll, I'll hop into it. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was like trying to think of who I should cover for our episode. And I had to make sure it wasn't somebody you've covered. So at least it could be fresh, fun content. And then I'm like, shit, it can't be somebody I've covered or any of my guests. <laughs> um, but I have like, I always have this running list of like women that I will cover one day. And this was actually a recommendation from a friend and a listener named Libby. I forgot that she had suggested this woman to me a long, long time ago that she actually wanted me to use for my Villainess-themed episode, but she didn't tell me why. And I had, like, written down in my notes this woman's name, and I was like, I wrote what she's famous for, and then I had, like, written this note that said, but there's a twist at the end. Oh, (laughs) I'm stoked now. I'm very excited. Well, it's not that twisty, and to be honest, I'm happy I never covered her for a villainous episode because she is not a villain, but I am excited to chat with you on what this thing is that she did, and I kind of, like, thought it would be perfect to talk with you about since I know you might already know who she is and maybe you have your own perspectives on her. Um, But yeah, I just thought this would be perfect, a perfect woman to chat with you about because I'm curious on what you think about her villain side. Great. So we'll get into it. So I'm covering Jacqueline Cochran, who was an American pilot that pioneered women's aviation and was the first woman to break the sound barrier in 1953. Okay. Do you know her? I I know this woman's name only because on my series, I did Amelia Earhart. And Mm -hmm. her name came up when I was looking at female aviators. Because when I did that episode, I talked a lot about how there are so few female aviators even today. 
and yep. and her name came up as being one of perfect one of the ladies like making history. But that's about all I know about her. Well, so I'm happy you made that point because I was going to mention this later in my episode. Is that she? Well, you as you're about to learn has a remarkable life in aviation, like literally insane. But for some reason, her life got zero media attention while Amelia Earhart's did, which yeah. is very interesting. And we'll I'll I'll fill you in on little bits and pieces as we go, but there's a lot of interesting things about Jacqueline that could make her a villain or could not. Or maybe her lack of fame that she believed she should have got but she didn't might be why there's a little bit of edge in her throughout her story. I'm not sure. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll get into Nice. It. I'm excited. But yeah, she was basically right there with Amelia Earhart. They were side by side. They experienced a lot of life together. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she is. she's right up there with Amelia, but nobody knows who she is. So... Jacqueline Cochran was born in Pensacola, Florida in the early 1900s and was the youngest of five children. She ends up going by the name Jackie, so I'm just going to call her that throughout the rest of the episode. Um, But this is where things already start off weird. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So she has stated time and time again that she grew up in poverty and that she had very little formal education. But there are a ton of strange conflicting stories around her childhood because there is apparently proof that she has a family and that later in life they lived with her on her farm. But that she told them that they had to claim they were her adoptive parents even though they were <laughs> um, And so I was like, what? This is so weird. So I, I mean, I looked up multiple resources. Depending on which one you're reading, she either was a poverty-stricken orphan that grew up in foster care, or she was lying about her poverty-stricken orphan <gasps> life and that she never grew up in foster care. <laughs> so wow, <laughs> I don't know. But depending on what you read, you get a different story. But according to her, she grew up an orphan and had no family. So okay. that's the story she's chosen to go with her entire life until the day she died. <laughs> wow. This is a complicated lady. <laughs> yes, she is a little complicated. So, who knows? I have no clue, and I literally never found it out. So, it's just going to be a mystery forever on in terms of her family. Um, so, when she was eight years old, her family, whoever that was, moved to Georgia, where she ended up working in a cotton mill. And then when she was 14 years old, she married a man named Robert Cochran and gave okay. birth to a son who ended up dying at the age of five. So... That's pretty gnarly. 14 years old. Like, whoa, that's a lot. Yes. Her marriage eventually ended. She got divorced and she went on to become a hairdresser. She moved to New York. Um, She landed a great job at a prestigious salon in Saks Fifth Avenue. And she sort of like kickstarted this new life for herself. So one of her clients whose hair she used to do was a super rich woman from New York And she was having a cocktail party one night and like one of her guests, his date, like last minute couldn't show up. And so this lady invited Jackie to the party and was like, I'll let you, I'll loan you a cocktail dress. Just like, please come. I feel terrible that this person's date can't come. And I think you would like have a really good time at the party. So she's like, okay. 
So she went to this party and she ended up being paired with this man named Floyd Bostwick Odlum, who was the man who didn't have a date. And he was apparently one of the 10 richest men in the world. (laughs) And Jackie ended up chatting with him all night since she was his date. And she told him all about her business dreams, how she wanted to launch her own cosmetics company. And he was just like blown (laughs) away by like the ambition that this woman had, like all of her dreams and hopes, like how she was so confident in her future. Cause like at the time she was super young, didn't make a lot of money, was a hairdresser in New York and like apparently had no family and was an orphan. And so he was (laughs) like, you know, whoa, like this lady is amazing. Like she has so much potential and I'm just blown away by her drive and he not only was like completely attracted to her and like wanting you know to have a relationship with her but he also was like I want to see this woman succeed because I believe in her so in addition to beginning a romantic relationship with her he also basically said like hey I want to help you out with this cosmetics line because I believe in your business and what you want to do so like let me help you out So he first suggested that Jackie learn how to fly because he thought that she should start like pitching and promoting her cosmetic business nationwide. So his thought process was like, you should be flying around the country and like promoting your brand to all these different people. And this was like right when aviation was like kickstarting, but like only men did this. Like there was no women out there that were flying planes. And, but at the time, like, aviation was trending everybody was obsessed with it it was like you know the conversations of the party like people who were pilots were considered like the bravest people on earth like it was just it was like the thing in this time and so his thought process was you should start flying planes to promote your business this would be an incredible opportunity to market your brand and so she's like all right And she began taking flying lessons, and she learned how to fly in literally three weeks. She earned her commercial pilot's license, and she took her first solo flight to Canada two days later. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Just off to the races, out. Um, Insane. And so... Like I just said, this was at the time aviation was a totally like a male dominated industry, but Jackie didn't care. She basically thought to herself, like, not only do I want to become the best pilot of all time, I also want to become the best female pilot of all time. So she had like major goals for her aviation career. So in other genius moves of her, well, now husband. So she ended up marrying Floyd. And he, in addition to telling her she should start flying, he also suggested that because she was going to start flying around and promoting her cosmetics line, that they should rebrand the company, which they did, and they named it Wings to Beauty, (laughs) which I'm just like, oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Business guru husband. He's just like, just making it all happen. Um, And then years later, he also, using his, like, rich man Hollywood connections, was able to get in touch with Marilyn Monroe, who ended up endorsing Jackie's lipstick line. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very impressive. Literally. Yeah, literally. There you go. I love a pun. (laughs) Um, 
so yeah, so things were going really well. Her husband was awesome. He was helping her out in business. She was learning how to fly. Cosmetics was booming and like things were going really well. So in 1935, Jackie entered the Bendix Transcontinental Air Race and became the first woman to ever enter or compete in an aviation race. She got third place, which is fantastic for her first yeah. flight race ever. Yeah. <laughs> but then only a few years later, she would win that race and end up with the Bendix Trophy. So after that happened, she became considered like the best female pilot in the United States at that time period. Um, so then Jackie ended up becoming one of the first members of the 99s, which is an organization. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm assuming you had to have covered this on Amelia Earhart. I did. Um, but yeah, it's an organization of pioneering female aviators in which Amelia Earhart was the first president of the organization. And then Jackie became the president later on in 1941 and mm-hmm. 1943. So right before the bombing at Pearl Harbor, Jackie and the 99 had pledged their aviation services to the military in the off chance. Well, I guess it wouldn't even be an off chance in the chance that a crisis were to occur, considering like World War Two is on the rise, like things were getting wild. The U.S. hadn't yet joined the war yet, but they kind of knew that like it could be right around the corner. And so Jackie and the 99s were like, hey, if anything happens, like we're here and we're ready to offer our services. So she contacted First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt to create a group of female pilots who could fly military aircraft on support missions, releasing men for combat duty. So I guess at this time, like, you know, men were so much needed on the front lines that they were, like, stressed out about not having enough men to, like, do all the background work and be fighting on the front lines. So Jackie was like, well, let me and my girls do all the background work while the dudes fight on the front lines. So that was what kind of what she was pitching to them. But, of course, there were a ton of male lieutenants that this needed to pass through for approval, and without surprise, there was a ton of pushback. They were like, sure. eh, we don't know. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so Jackie was like, all right, well, that just got put on hold for a minute. And she ended up joining Wings for Britain, which uh-huh. was an organization that ferried American-built jets to Britain, which in turn allowed Jackie to become the first woman to fly a bomber jet across the Atlantic. <laughs> So she's just out here being the first of firsts and everything, like literally. Um, So when she was in Britain, she volunteered her services to Royal Air Force and she recruited qualified women pilots in the U.S. and took them to England where they joined the Air Transport Auxiliary, where Jackie obtained the rank of flight captain. So pretty much like what she was like wanting to do in the U.S., she just went and did it in britain in the UK, they yeah. were just like yeah i don't know we aren't ready for you to do this here and she's like all right well i'm gonna do it where they're where they want my services where i can be used to help people and she did she did an incredible job out there she kicked ass and then shortly after that pearl harbor was bombed and jackie came back to the u.s and was like all right here i am like are you willing to help like let me help you now you know i i've been in england i've been doing all this incredible stuff i've been training all these female pilots like come on like we're here we're ready let us come come to war with you guys so 
With President Roosevelt's blessing, Jackie was able to handpick 25 American women recruits to implement female aviation into the U.S. Army Air Corps by ferrying planes. After their success, she was asked to organize a group of training women pilots in the United States. So in 1943, WASP was born, Women Air Force Service Pilots, which was a group of civilian American women who were trained pilots that tested aircrafts, ferried aircrafts, and trained other pilots so male pilots could be used for actual combat and war. So this was huge because this had never, ever existed before. And she basically founded and you know, made happen like the first group of female pilots in the military that had ever existed. So high five to Jackie. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. It really is amazing. And, you know, I was reading something else on one of the articles that I was doing research on was that like when we think about World War Two, there's like and how women were involved with it. There's a lot of. Um, like credit that's given to all the women back home who are running all of the jobs, like Rosie the Riveter style, while their men's were at war. And sure. there's even um, a lot of credit given to women who had done work with the army, like nurses that were, you know, working in the war and stuff like that. But there's very yeah. little mention of the female pilots <laughs> that like came in and were they were almost like the unsung heroes of world war ii and they get almost like no recognition yeah. and no one really knows that it happened yeah i i know virtually nothing about them i knew that out there in the world there is a book called fly girls which i think gets into it a little bit but i i personally do not know these stories and as someone who like looks at a lot of women's history it's amazing how rarely they come up yeah. And this is huge. Like the fact that like, I mean, to be honest, when I was a kid in like elementary school, I very rarely retained the information that I was learning. Sure. But I mean, I have no recollection of ever hearing about WASP at any point in my, no. my education, at, no. at any point learning that there was a group of civilian women who were called into World War II military to fly military jets to help men who are in combat. Like, that's yeah. nuts. <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, um, that's really huge. It's a major stamp in history that people don't know about. And Jackie was really the person that made that happen. So, you know, she continued to fly. She continued to train and fly non-combative missions for several months more. But once the war turned in the Allies' favor, the WASP service was deemed obsolete. So Jackie had really hoped that Congress would make the WASPs an official branch of the U.S. military, but they were basically laid off in 1944. And they were just like, all right, thanks for your service. Like, you're fired. And they're like, wait, what do you mean? We've done all this incredible work and we're fantastic pilots like you don't want us to be in the military like we just literally showed you that we can and we will they're like nope we're we're good we're all good here <laughs> and sadly female pilots would not be allowed back into the military until the mid 1970s wow this was 1943 jeez that's so that is wild yeah. it's sad it's like kind of heartbreaking I just, it's, like, kind of disgusting. I feel like that's just, like, that 
thing where they're like they they use them because they had to, but otherwise they aren't interested in allowing them to participate. And that sucks because they did an incredible job. And so Jackie received the Distinguished Service Medal in 1945, and her award was announced in a War Department press release, which stated she was the first woman civilian to receive the DSM, which was then the highest non-combat award presented by the United States government. And then a few years later, she joined the U.S. Air Force Reserves as a lieutenant colonel, And in 1969, she was promoted to colonel and retired a year later in 1970. So after the war ended, Jackie began flying the new jet aircraft, going on to set numerous records and became the first woman pilot to go supersonic when she broke the sound barrier with her speed. I don't even know what that means. Like, like (laughs) you're just flying so fast that, like, you're faster than the speed of light? Faster than the speed of sound. So sound. like so like when you break the sound barrier, you're literally moving so fast that like you will see a pl- the plane move and then you will hear it. It's this idea oh, of the sonic boom because yes. the visual is moving faster, the light is moving faster than the sound is. So that's how fast she was traveling. It's a, it's an incredible feat. <laughs> it's it's oh insane. My God. Okay, so now we're kind of getting into her villainess year. Okay. We'll we'll see what you think about this. So so the war's ended. You know, she's not not really doing her flying stuff anymore. Um, But she did become a sponsor of a program called Mercury 13, which was an early effort to test the ability of women to become astronauts. Oh, okay, interesting. Yes. So this was not actually a program that was launched by NASA itself, but it was sort of like a spin off to NASA because the two people that were running it were NASA employees. Okay. They were just kind of like running this side edu- like side program to like test women to see if they would even be able to be a part of it. And then I think it would then have to pass through NASA or whatever. So it was like a preliminary stage. Yeah. Um, so 13 women pilots passed the preliminary tests before the program was canceled. So it ended up getting canceled. And although Jackie initially supported the program, and she was actually a large force that pushed women to be considered for space, she was later responsible for delaying further phases of testing, which most likely was the cause of the program to be canceled entirely. Oh, why? And so... Well, the reason that she claims is that she didn't feel like it was the right time to bring women into space because she stated that time was of the essence. And if the United States was going to beat the Soviets in the space race, we had to do it like now. And if we were to consider women into this program, they would have to go through like a series of additional education programs that they need to complete. They had all these qualifications that they had to do that they didn't have yet. And it would require training and like years of, you know, experience yeah. to get these qualifications and that we just didn't have the time to do that because if we did, then we would be allowing the Soviets the time they needed to beat us in the space race. You want to know something that I think is really interesting in response to this? Um, 
so the Russians, obviously, on their side of things, they not only wanted to get the first person in space just like we did, but they also wanted to get the first woman in space. And as a result, Russia went the other way. Russia started training women to go into space before they started training men because they were so worried about losing the race to get the first man in space but believed they could get the first woman. Also, because of sexism, they believed it would take them longer to train a woman to go into space than to train men. And they beat us with the first woman by a lot because they put Valentina Tereshkova into space, like, I want to say early 1960s for sure. And we didn't put a woman into space until 1983 with Sally Ride. Well, and see, we really effed up because when this was happening was the 1960s. Yeah. So while we were working on Mercury 13, getting 13 women to, you know, pass these tests to become qualified to be astronauts, then we were like, oh, well, actually, never mind. We were yeah. too afraid that the Soviets are going to beat us, so we'll put women aside for now so that we can beat them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They did not. They did not succeed in this. They they failed. <laughs> so well. So that's this is what Jackie claims is why she then later kind of re like pushed back on the plan. But some people think, and this isn't proven. It's just rumor. It's speculation that she decided or she had like second thoughts on supporting this program because she was worried that she could lose her title of being like the greatest aviator in history or the greatest female aviator in history. Ooh. Ego. So I don't I don't know. I don't know. Some <laughs> people think that. Um but this is the other thing is that around the same time like when this was all happening it was 1962 there was a public hearing to determine whether or not the exclusion of women from the astronaut program was discriminatory but this hearing took place two years before the civil rights act of 1964 would go into effect which made gender discrimination illegal so since this happened before that act went into effect they're basically I mean, they could say, yeah, that was screwed up that you kicked these ladies out of the astronaut program because they're women, but it's not illegal that you did that. So it was kind of just like a loss in terms of that public hearing and like whatever trials went down. So Mercury 13 was canceled and Jackie sort of came out as a little bit of a victim because she decided to pull out her support in the 11th hour for these women to move forward as astronauts. And I read this I didn't write it down but I think it's worth stating so like her biggest thing was you know they didn't have the qualifications needed which was going to delay everyone getting into space so the qualifications that they needed was an engineering degree and they needed to become um military jet flyers or they had to have had an experience in military jet flying and during this time women weren't allowed to be jet flyers so there would have to be some kind of change that would take place in the military to let women become jet flyers to be qualified. But also, at the same time, these two other dudes who were in a different Mercury, I think it was like Mercury 7 program, neither of them had engineering degrees, and they were allowed to yeah. go up into space. So you it know was kind of like really you know gray zone on like what the qualifications were and who really cared about them. That's really fascinating to me, too, because, again, like talking about the cosmonauts, do you know what the cosmonauts had to do? be in order to be a female astronaut cosmonaut 
No, what? The first two women to go into space, both Russian, had no engineering background, no science background, no flight background. Both of them were amateur parachutists. And, beca- and that was their qualification. Valentina Tereshkova, who was first, was an amateur parachutist. And because of the way the space capsules were constructed, they had to be able to, like, parachute out of them in the, in the last stage of descent back into the Earth's atmosphere. So they had zero qualifications, especially as you compare it to what, the, the hoops that we eventually, like, made women and men, but women especially, go through in order to become astronauts in the United States. It just blows my mind when I think of the qualifications that, again, a woman like Sally Ride had as compared to the earliest cosmonauts. Yeah, and it's also ridiculous to be like, oh, well, a woman needs to have military jet experience, but women aren't allowed to have military jet yeah. experience. Yeah, so yes. how <laughs> you pull that off, you know? Exactly. Well, and then it also turned out that the 13 women who were in this program and who had passed all of the testings, the same testings that men had already passed who were astronauts or who are in this program, um, the women were had more flying experience than any of the male candidates really yeah that's shocking they they had gone through like years and years and years of aviation training had um had to prove through all these flying tests how to do all this stuff and they like beat the men out of the water in terms of their flying experience but they didn't have engineering degrees and they didn't have the jet flight experience with the military even though the other two dudes didn't have engineering degrees either but they were accepted and allowed in, and then they canceled the women's program. So I don't know, but Jackie, like you'll read a lot of different kind of conflicting reviews on her where people think of her to be this huge icon for women in aviation. You know, she paved the way, you know, she made it possible for women to not only believe that they could be pilots, but also pursue dreams in aviation, which was totally male-dominated in the time. And she also kick-started, like, the first group of female pilots in the military. So she's praised in this in this area, but so many other people are kind of like, but wait, like, what's the deal? Because she literally, like, kicked women out of their opportunity of being an astronaut. Like, she was kind of, like, the one writing force that made sure that didn't happen so do we like her do we not like her like what's going on so again i don't know too much on what her actual beliefs were in you know why she was against it if it makes sense that she was actually worried that the soviets were going to beat us in the race or if she had a little bit of ego kind of kicking in where she didn't want other women to outshine her in aviation i'm not really sure Um, But another thing to piggyback off of this, which I've also read, is that you know how she has this big old fable about how she was an orphan Annie and that she grew up in foster care? People are like, no, she wasn't. She had a mom and dad. She had five siblings. Like, what is she talking about? People also kind of think that, like, she almost wanted to spin her own story where she was, you know, this girl that came from nothing, from nobody and had no life set up for her. And then luck would have it that she'd meet this millionaire and she'd go on to be the best aviator in history. And that like, she almost created this little like sob story for herself that would like kind of help her PR in the world. So I don't know. (laughs) She was about the story. She was about the narrative. 
yeah, I think she kind of was spinning her own narrative to, and again, it goes back to Amelia Earhart, where everybody loved and adored and knew Amelia Earhart, and nobody really knows who Jackie Cochran is. So I don't know if, like, while she was, you know, getting all of these awards and being the first woman to do this and that, if she wasn't getting any publicity for it, she might have been like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> like, why isn't anybody noticing me? And so, you know, maybe kind of creating other little bits of story here and there to kind of fill in a more glamorous background that would make her yeah. more appealing. I don't know. So, again, like, not sure, not, not totally sure. But um, later in life, she became very involved with politics and is actually coined to be the person that convinced Eisenhower to run for president in 1952. Mm. She played a major role in his successful campaign, and the two remained really close friends until the ends of their lives. Jackie ended up running for Congress in 1956 from California's 29th Congressional District as the candidate of the Republican Party. And although she defeated five male opponents to win the Republican nomination, in the general election, she lost to a Democrat. Her political setback was one of the very few failures she ever experienced in her life, and she never attempted to run again. And those that knew Jackie have said that the loss bothered her for the rest of her life until she died. Wow. <laughs> like, she wow. took that loss hard and was like, I'm out of here. Like, no way. Like, I'm done. Never again. Um, so Jackie ended up passing away on August 9th in 1980 at her home in Indio, California, that she shared with her husband, who had died four years before her. She's been coined the Speed Queen, and at the time of her death, no other pilot held more speed, distance, or altitude records in aviation history than her, man or woman. So she wow. was the best in her in her industry. Um, Jackie's aviation accomplishments never gained the continuing media attention given to those of Amelia Earhart, but nevertheless, she deserves a place in the ranks of famous women aviators and as a woman who used her influence to advance the cause of women in aviation. Despite her lack of formal education, Jackie's natural talent for business and her investment in cosmetics proved a lucrative one. In 1951, the Boston Chamber of Commerce voted her one of the 25 outstanding businesswomen in America. And in 1953 and 1954, the Associated Press named her Woman of the Year in Business. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's amazing. I know. And so just sum up, you know, everything that Jackie's done. She was the first woman to land and take off from an aircraft carrier, the first woman to pilot a bomber across the North Atlantic and wow. later to fly a jet aircraft on a transatlantic flight, the first pilot to make a blind landing, the first woman to fly a fixed wing jet aircraft across the Atlantic the first pilot to fly above 20,000 feet with an oxygen mask, the first woman to enter the Bendix transcontinental race, and the first woman to fly faster than the speed of sound. So she did a lot of really remarkable things in her yes. life. And she was an incredible pilot. Like, are yeah. you just born with talent like that? Like, where does that come from? I mean, I also think, like, it's... It's too bad we don't hear more stories about women like Jackie, just because, like, 
there are so I said this before, but there are so few female aviators in the world, in our country especially. Even today, less than 5% of all pilots are women. Like, And I think that part of that is because we don't hear the stories of female aviators. We all know the name of one female aviator. Exactly <laughs> one. And that's it. I mean, look, I'm, I live in New York. I go home to Wisconsin like with a fair amount of frequency. Zero times have I ever been on a flight that was piloted by a woman. It's just like yeah. so, it's so rare even now. And I think part of that is like the way we're teaching like little girls the stories that we are sharing about what women do or can do. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, but also like, I think it also kind of goes in line with you know, just typical gender stereotypes, gender roles. When you're a kid, when you're a little girl, you aren't you aren't playing with airplanes. You aren't playing with, you know, those kinds of, you know, people aren't buying you things that would be related. Like that would be that would be categorized with the boy stuff. So it's like <laughs> That's true. I have to tell you, this is an amazing segue to the woman who I have chosen for for my lady. I don't know if you have Perfect. if you have more on Jackie, but this is a really solid segue. <laughs> Get into it. Let's do it. Okay. So, the lady I chose relates to, you know, what we're teaching our kids, what what our what our children play with. She is she has things in common with Jackie. She was a complicated is a complicated lady. She has had a variety of careers like Jackie entrepreneur pilot we're coming into we're coming into the holiday season so i think of this lady a lot i associate seeing her under my christmas tree on christmas morning she is 61 years old but truly does not look a day over 25 in spite of all the time she has spent in the california sun i am speaking of course of barbara millicent roberts better known as barbie Oh my god, yay! <laughs> yes! So, this is the story of Barbie. When I do Feminist Cocktail Hour, I often talk about great women in history, but I also talk about influential pop culture icons. Unlike Jackie, Barbie is a Barbie is a woman who all of us know, but the story behind Barbie is a story that a lot of us don't know. So, in the days before Barbie, there were basically two kinds of dolls. Like, prior to 19, the 1950s, the late 1950s, you had two dolls, right? You had baby and paper. Boys, like we were talking about, they get, like, lots of different toy sets that, like, are encouraging play patterns where they could act out every imaginable future, from cowboys to police officers to doctors. But girls, like, just had dolls. And dolls that, like, led them down one path to motherhood, right? These baby yeah. dolls. And then, like, also two-dimensional dolls, like paper dolls, who's, you know, if you've played with a paper doll, they're a crap toy. You know, their clothing barely stays on because you have those stupid freaking tabs. They're not an excellent, you know, plaything. Ruth Handler, one of the stars of our story, Ruth Handler, saw this problem in her own two children. She had a son and a daughter. Would you care to guess their names? Ken? Ken and Barbie! <laughs> Ken <Yay>! and Barbie! 
<laughs> Nothing weird about that. Anyway, so Ruth, <laughs> Ruth wanted to make a three-dimensional fashion doll where the clothes didn't fall off because of the tabs. And she was in the perfect position to do so because her husband, Elliot, had recently started a manufacturing company with his friend, Matt, you know, for them to be able to, to make ends meet in, in trying financial times. Originally, Elliot and Matt... Um, manufactured plastic picture frames but after they did a run of plastic pianos for dollhouses um they sold these pianos out and matt and elliot shifted from toys matt and elliot matt and l matt tell oh my god (laughs) yes so ruth's husband founded mattel a hybrid of their two names, a portmanteau. That building of is literally right down the street from my house. Is it really? That's so yeah. funny. So, so prior to 1959 and Barbie's debut, Mattel's biggest toy was a toy that, like, no one has ever heard of. It was a plastic ukulele called a yukadoodle. That was Mattel's legacy in 19 before 1959. So for years, beginning in like the early mid 1950s, Ruth was pitching this three-dimensional paper doll concept, explaining that, like, she had watched girls play and they were seeking toys where they could act out, like, a variety of adult storylines. Matt and Elliot were like, mm, no. They didn't want to make an adult doll because they didn't want... This is, this is their excuse. They didn't want to make a doll with boobs. That was the really? issue. <laughs> yes, that was the issue. The breasts. Right from the beginning... Barbie was a controversial lady. (laughs) Um, And there are a lot of reasons. Perhaps one is that, and this is, I think, the most interesting thing about Barbie, she is descended from a German hooker, a lady by the name of Bild Lily. So let me explain. Lily was a comic strip character in the 1950s in a German newspaper called Bild, B-I-L-D, which was basically the National Enquirer of Germany. Lily was a call girl. A call girl cartoon character who only wanted to have sex all day. And there was a doll that was made in her image. This was not a children's toy. This was a gag gift that men would give to lady friends as like, you know, an indication of their intentions. But the doll was somewhat unique. It held patents for several innovations in doll making. For instance, it had a jointed head that could swivel from side to side, and its legs didn't sprawl like a baby doll's did. They could be positioned back and forth. If you put Build Lily and Barbie side by side, you would not know the difference. They are virtually identical. It's like on that old TV show, Bewitched, you know, when uh-huh. that show? Yeah. So Elizabeth Montgomery, who's the lead on that show, she puts on a wig and suddenly she's not Samantha. She's her twin cousin, Serena. Or like, I don't know if there are youths who listen. I think it's like Hannah Montana versus Miley. Oh, like, they're yep. very clearly the same person. That's Build Lily versus Barbie. If you look them up, you will see that these two dolls are identical, essentially. Now, Ruth Handler discovered Build Lily while she was visiting Europe with her family, and she brought it back to Mattel. She worked with a man named Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan was literally a rocket scientist. They worked together to redesign Lily just a little bit and pitched the doll again. 
And while the men who were reviewing this product, as well as many mothers in the test groups, felt that this doll was still very much a sex object, the little girls in test groups were obsessed with it. So the doll went to market. Barbie made... I know, it's a crazy story. Barbie... (laughs) Barbie made her debut at the American International Toy Fair on March 9th in 1959. This date is now used as Barbie's birthday. The original Barbie was billed as a teenage fashion model. She was 11 and a half inches tall, again, just like Billed Lily. She came in both blonde and brunette and wore that signature top knot that we know from old Barbies and a black and white striped bathing suit. The original doll cost $3 and was intended to be sold on this like razor, razor blade model of sales, which means like, you know, you buy a relatively inexpensive razor, but have to keep buying. Thank you. (laughs) Let's try that again. Um, She was sold on this razor, razor blade model of sales, meaning, you know, you buy a relatively inexpensive razor, but you have to keep buying new blades. Or in the case of Barbie, continually buying new outfits. Mm -hmm. At the toy fair, Barbie was welcomed with, like, lukewarm sentiments. People weren't that stoked about her. But a few months later, she was introduced to little girls across the country when she made her first television appearance through advertisements during the Mickey Mouse Club. Barb, yeah. Barbie was the first toy to use television as its primary form of advertisement, which is something I feel like we see way less of today than when I was a kid. Like, when we were little, Saturday mornings were filled with cartoons and toy ads, and it's, it's less of a thing now. But the TV ads of the 1950s are what skyrocketed Barbie to fame, and the demand was initially so high that production could not keep up. She was immediately successful once she hit the airwaves. And this was great news for all of Mattel, but especially for that aforementioned rocket scientist, Jack Ryan, because his deal with Mattel was that he was paid royalties on any toy he created. So literally made like money off of every individual Barbie that was sold. This was a great deal for Jack, but a shitty deal for Mattel and eventually ended with a lawsuit between the two and ended up with Jack leaving the company. So even though Jack was fundamental in Barbie's creation, he is often edited out of her story. And this is because of that conflict between them, but it's also because, again, Barbie's dark understory. Jack was likely a sex addict. He oh, had... Shit. Yeah. <laughs> and he, was, he and Ruth Handler like created this doll. Jack had five wives. One of them was Zsa Zsa Gabor. And ultimately, after this lawsuit, he killed himself in the early 90s. <gasps> I know. Whoa. It's really dark. And this was not, you know, a cute look for the brand. So as much as possible, they have tried to distance themselves from him as being one of her creators. Even though, at the very least, it seems, he had a 50-50 hand in, in, the, in the creation of Barbie, along with Ruth Handler. And he claimed to have been much more prominent in the physical development of the doll. Now, Mattel had its share of controversy beyond Jack Ryan. Of course, the Build Lily people ultimately, obviously sued Mattel for copyright infringement because (laughs) they just straight up ripped off their fucking doll. Mattel had no choice but to pay them off. 
and absorb their patents because they, they had done that. There was no way of negating it. You put the dolls side by side and it was clear. But then, in 1978, Ruth Handler and Elliot were charged with fraud and oh. false report. Yeah. And false reporting to the SCC. They were inflating all of their numbers at Mattel to keep their stock prices up in the 70s when they were flagging. Ruth, in fact, didn't even... She pled no contest. She claimed that she had lost focus on her business because of a breast cancer diagnosis that forced her to undergo a radical mastectomy. As I told you, I myself have had breast cancer. I have also had a bilateral mastectomy. And I have committed fraud zero times. So... I just feel like they, they don't go hand in hand as much as Ruth would, would have you think. They're not as related as she would like you to believe. Oh my um, God. But interestingly, you know, Ruth, her new line of work related to her breast cancer diagnosis. Um, after she left Mattel, she had a hard time finding a decent prosthesis. Because, you know, they did reconstruction differently then. You had to have, find prosthetic breasts if you had them removed. So... She developed one herself that was much more realistic than anything that had previously been on the market. In fact, First Lady Betty Ford wore Ruth's Nearly Me prosthetic breasts. Oh, wow. Even, I know, right? No one knows that the creative Barbie also created fake boobs. But again, even <laughs> after Mattel, her life was about the boobs. A lot about the boobs for Ruth Handler. Barbie, though, Barbie herself is not, you know, just about the boobs. In the mythological backstory of Barbie, she is actually a wholesome gal. As I mentioned at the top, she is from Wisconsin, just like the pink squirrel cocktail. This is how I linked everything together. I, I covered Barbie on Feminist Cocktail Hour, and this is how I linked it all together, both a lady and a cocktail from my home state of Wisconsin. Um, Barbie Millicent Roberts, that's her full name, was born and raised in the fictitious town of Willows, Wisconsin. She has three-ish sisters. We know one of them well, right? We all had a skipper doll, the flat-footed skipper doll, differentiating her from Barbie. And then she has two-ish younger siblings who shift around a bit. In the 90s, there was Stacy, who's not there so much now. There was Kelly... Chelsea, Todd. Her backstory is not, like, totally fixed. Um, but certain elements remain consistent. One of the most important is that Barbie is a perpetually single girl. She does not marry, ever. In 1961, girls wrote Mattel. So Ken, he has a full name too, Ken Carson, was created to be her companion. But she won't let him put a ring on it, you know? And there, I'm sure there are myriad reasons that Barbie has decided against this. One of them has to be the fact that his junk is all kinds of strange. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no one, no one wants a man that smooth. It's just, it's, it's not appealing. I, I would say another reason though, is that, you know, the lady has no time. She can only ever be a dream bride because she's busy doing other things. She's busy being a teacher, a lifeguard, a nurse, an army officer, a fashion designer, a pilot, as we discussed, ballerina, rock star, and a presidential candidate. Oh, introduced, wow. yes, introduced in 1992, presidential candidate Barbie, long before any American woman had been a major party nominee. Over the years, Barbie has had more than 200 careers. 
many of which were quite ahead of their time. She was an astronaut in 1965, four years before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, around the time (laughs) Jackie Cochran was getting into it. And, you know, 20 years before Sally Ride became the first woman in space. She donned scrubs as a surgeon in 1973, a time when only 5% of doctors in the United States were women. Now, I know. She's, she was I progressive in her own I way. I didn't realize that. It's, it's true. Again, she's a complicated woman. Now, as a Wisconsin girl myself, I, I never really think of Barbie as being a Midwestern gal. You know, I always associate her with California, Perhaps because of her numerous pink convertibles, which would be ridiculously impractical in Wisconsin. There's no (laughs) way they have four-wheel drive. Um, But also because of the iconic Malibu Barbie, who was introduced in 1970. Malibu Barbie was the first major facelift that Barbie underwent, and arguably the most significant. This is a time when Barbie sales were flagging, you know, early 1970s we're getting into you know those years of the women's movement so we're really starting to question barbie's motives (laughs) and (laughs) and the big change is that the original barbie had the same eyes as that that sexy build lily doll right they had the heavy eyelid and the downcast gaze again coy and sexual but with malibu barbie the gave the gaze shifts up so that it is looking directly ahead, engaging with the play partner, which, which sounds really dirty. Play partner <laughs> is not. It does. Is that, not, was, that was a strange choice of term. <laughs> I mean, that's. I don't know what else there is when you're like in the toy business. They talk about play patterns and play partners. I will also say that like it's not off-brand for my own experiences playing with Barbies uh-huh. because, like, you know, I, I I don't know about you. I had um, one million Barbies. I had so many Barbies. A- apparently in the 1960s and 70s, girls had an average of one Barbie doll in the United States. By the 1980s, that number jumped to an average of eight dolls per girl in the United States. It's possible that I alone am responsible <laughs> for that shift. I mean, I, me and my friends, we had bags and bags of Barbie dolls. And all of our, like, quote, play patterns involved, you know, scandalous affairs, murder plots, unplanned pregnancy. There was just a lot of drama with our Barbie dolls at all times. And, and I mean, there have been a lot of discussions over the years about Barbie and whether or not she is a good influence on young girls. And again, with my play patterns in the 90s, that's, that's no small wonder. I was um, definitely a kid during, like, the high time, uh, uh, a high time for Barbie. The most popular Barbie ever sold was Totally Hair Barbie, introduced in 1992, who I totally had. She had hair that went, like, all the way down to her feet. It was, like, crimped a little... Yeah, it was, like, crimped a little bit, and she wore this kind of, like, mod pattern I gave it a fishtail braid. Oh, yes, girl! That's how you do it! (laughs) Yes, she was a great doll. I have, she was a good doll. She was introduced the same year, 1992, as the infamous Teen Talk Barbie. Teen Talk Barbie had a button that you pressed that caused Barbie to spout out a variety of phrases. One of them was, math class is hard. <laughs> yeah. 
By the okay, way, well, I, math class was really hard for me. Um, math class was hard for me too, but like, <laughs> I but like I, I just have a hard time imagining the fact. Apparently, it takes more than a hundred people to create a single Barbie doll, right? There are fashion designers, there are makeup teams, there are people who design her her molds and her hairstyle. And obviously, in the case of Teen Talk Barbie, you know it, there is someone who's designing her dialogue it's hard to imagine that like not one of these people was like um this line is not going to go over big with moms trying to get their daughters to practice multiplication tables like (laughs) it's not it's not the most the most sellable phrase nowadays of course like barbie is working much harder on her public image there's actually an amazing series of vlogs on YouTube that Barbie has put out. And by Barbie, I mean it's a computer-generated version of Barbie, a cartoon version of Barbie, not the doll itself. But she has these vlogs where she deals with real issues facing young women intended to empower them. And they're, they're truly incredibly excellent videos. There's a video on the sorry reflex, the way women have a tendency oh, to say wow. sorry even when they don't mean it. Um, and they say it, you know, just in response, like, we feel bad for taking up space. She addresses that. She has a video on finding your own voice where she tells a story about her and her friend Teresa being in a meeting with a bunch of boys and the boys continually ignoring her and Teresa. But then when Ken repeats their exact same ideas, the boys are suddenly ready to listen. And then quite recently, just earlier in the summer, Barbie did a video with her friend Nikki in response to the Black Lives Matter movement related to racism. They're they're wow. really they're they're great and they're beautifully done and is honestly this like run by Mattel or like Yeah. Oh, it's okay. through Mattel and it is like official Barbie. Um it is Barbie herself's YouTube channel. If you go to How Barbie cool. on YouTube That's you'll really find cool. her. They're fantastic and honestly like they gave she's an unlikely, you know, progressive hero, just like Teen Vogue. You didn't you didn't see it coming but and didn't know how much you needed it. But like as a woman in her thirties, I it is these videos have given me things to think about. Oh God, and I love it. they're so fantastic. And I'm really glad that like young girls out there have that vision of Barbie to look up to. But (laughs) when they look at Barbie and when they look at a Barbie doll, there is a little bit of a mixed message when it comes to empowerment. So studies have shown that girls who play with Barbies, you know, and, and again, Barbie is a doll with ridiculous proportions. And the girls who play with them are shown in studies to have lower personal body images than girls who play with more realistic dolls. In terms of her proportions, if Barbie were a real woman, she would be five foot nine. She would wear a thirty-nine double F bra and a size three shoe. (laughs) Yup. Her waist would be eighteen inches, and she would likely be unable to stand, forcing her to walk on all fours. A feat that would be made doubly difficult because her neck is so long and thin that it wouldn't be able to hold up her oversized head. Oh my god. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, Mattel has at times compounded these PR issues with a variety of missteps. Like for instance, in the 1960s, there was Slumber Party Barbie. She came with a scale. I don't know why you have a scale at your slumber party, but <laughs> cool. 
and the scale is permanently set to 110 pounds. Again, tricky to maintain if you're, like, pushing six feet like Barbie. Also, she comes with a book titled How to Lose Weight. Um, yup, yup. And on the back of the book, there's easy advice. How to lose weight? Don't eat. Great. Good messaging, Mattel. Thank you when for did that. did this go out? The 1960s, the mid-1960s. Slumber also, Party Barbie. Slumber? How does that even associate with Slumber know. Party? Some guy who works at Mattel was like, you know what? I was out with a fatty last week, <laughs> and we need to teach little girls that they need to. So what, what ruse can we use? <laughs> Oh my god. To get this nightmare. messaging across. Yes. How no. Could terrible. Anybody have thought that that was going to be okay. No, even in the 1960s that's a rough one. And you can understand again like why moments like that there was a backlash against Barbie in the late 1960s and in the 19, you know, early 1970s. Now, the one thing I'm going to give Mattel in their defense is that Barbie was not necessarily designed to be an example for young women to strive to attain. I mean, really, she was designed to have sex with German men. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, Mattel says this, but it's true. She's designed to put clothing on her. So she's being, there are no Barbie, magical Barbie fabrics. You know, the fabric that Barbie wears is fabric designed for humans, and that was more true in the 1960s. So you need a doll to some extent with a stupidly long neck and a teeny tiny waist to make that layering work. You know, if you want a coat that has buttons, if you want snaps, if you want something with a collar, you need to create a silhouette that is not identical to that of a human. When... Barbie introduced new dolls with more realistic body shapes. These in more recently, like in the early aughts. These dolls, unfortunately, did not sell well because girls thought the dolls looked fat. Even though their bodies would be the equivalent of a human size four. But again, Four. Oh my god. That is Barbie as a size four. It's very sad for all of us. But you know, again, mortifying. like mortifying. <laughs> it's sad. It's sad. It's sad. But you know, again, like we we can't put too much on Barbie because Barbie is not a human. Barbie is a doll. And she's a doll who has, you know, been walking this metaphoric tightrope for decades. She has to be pretty, but also empowering. She has to be a little bit sexy, but also sellable. And also, you know, a wholesome role model, which to me feels emblematic of womanhood. You know, she's swimming through a sea of contradictions, just trying to make everyone happy with undeniably mixed results. (laughs) And, you know, while her messaging and even her legacy are a mixed bag, her her enduring popularity is undeniable. Today, Barbie is sold in 150 countries. 58 million dolls are sold each year, which means that 100 Barbie dolls are sold every minute, grossing more than a billion dollars every year. In fact, in 2019, 1.2 billion dollars was That's the gross crazy. for Barbie. I'm yes. shocked, actually, that they're still selling this well. They sell great. Uh, actually, the most expensive Barbie doll to ever be sold was sold semi-recently at auction, and she went for $305,000. 
So Barbies are still out there. They're still being sold. And, you know, again, she's complicated. She is not unlike Jackie Cochran in this way. She has, <laughs> she has things that she should be, you know, a little bit ashamed of. And, uh, and many things, though, that, like, I, I am grateful for. You know, I was a lover of Barbie dolls, and I think that I learned a lot of my storytelling skills through imaginative play with Barbie. You know, I learned, as I demonstrate on Feminist Cocktail Hour, the importance of having the exact right outfit for every occasion. <laughs> and as I am now, you know, an actor, writer, teacher, video editor, mixologist, I've embraced, like Barbie, doing all of the jobs. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm grateful because I am definitely the woman I am today because... Barbie showed me how. <laughs> yes, she did. Yes, she did. <laughs> oh, my God. I freaking love that. <laughs> that was incredible. Hey, thanks. I love a great story. Didn't know any of that stuff. <laughs> but also, right? like, you think you know how ironic is it that the fruition of Barbie came from such a dark, twisted, weird thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She has a dark, dark backstory, that Barbie. She looks perky and cute, but she's seen some shit. It's just so <laughs> ironic that, like, the number one... its I would imagine Barbie's, what, the number one most famous kid's toy ever? Is there anything I think that, for sure. Right? Yeah. There, what could possibly be larger than that? I don't know. I'm pretty sure she was inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame in the first round, right? Like, they have a Toy Hall of Fame, and every year they add more toys, and she was in there right from the start because there there's no brand name toy like maybe we more of us have played with blocks but like besides yeah yeah i would say barbie's bigger than legos yeah yeah for and sure. that's like the competition that's well, out there because no one's really doing legos anymore are they i have no clue oh, <laughs> i not mean, anything i've again doing all the jobs i've done some some babysitting in my time i feel like in new york not a lot of kids have barbies you see a decent number of Legos, but then there are toys that like we didn't have as kids that are big, like magnetiles are a building toy. Not not as many dolls though. <coughs> Sorry. That's right. Not as many dolls though. And I think it's again because among progressives, Barbie has gotten a bad rap. And I think that's mm -hmm. too bad because I think dolls are important. I've featured Barbie on Feminist Cocktail Hour, although I went much more in depth into her story today. Um but I also featured Pleasant Roland on an episode. Pleasant Roland, who's the creator of uh, the American Girl doll, which was ultimately bought out by Mattel, which I have some personal experience with in that I began my acting career as a kid playing an American Girl doll in the American Girl doll musical in Chicago when I was a little girl. So cool. That's like every little girl's dream, isn't it? It, it was certainly mine. I can't <laughs> deny that. Um, you know, and these dolls have a much... Um, more wholesome backstory for one, but also, you know, uh, physical embodiment. They're built like little girls. Their stories are, are the stories of little girls. Um, all the other dolls until very recently were also little girls. They just recently introduced a boy doll. Um, and yet still, I don't see as many American girl dolls as I feel like I did when we were growing up just because people have eked away from, from doll playing. I think that's unfortunate because I do think it really, it helps build those storytelling and imagine 
imaginative skills. And also, I think that dolls in a lot of ways help children, male and female, and I think more boys should play with dolls, um, but help children develop a sense of empathy in many ways, in that Mm -hmm. you're reenacting, like, real-life scenarios and playing both sides of the conversations. So I think that it is a helpful way to, again, we talked about podcasting and you know, doing videos as a way of working through problems, as a way of, like, therapy. And I think playing with dolls is the first way that you learn to do that. Even if those dolls are German sex workers. I still... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what's funny? I I was reading an article recently, like, I think this week, and Barbie came up, and I don't know how I... where I saw this, but I had read something, and maybe you know if this is true or not, that... Barbie was the first adult doll, where yeah. before her, it was just all babies or even yeah. little kid dolls. And so she yeah. kind of sparked this new, like, adult yeah. doll. And I think yeah. with that, you know, they kind of set this tone that, hey, here's this, like, adult doll that you should kind of look up to. You know, yep. it's you're the little girl and she's your adult doll. And you're, in a sense, kind of, like, looking at her as this idol Yep. And so I think they did a really well in the Barbies that were progressive and showing them in careers and showing yeah. them, you know, being like having all these different talents and hobbies and just doing all kinds of stuff and, you know, not getting married. Like, thank God the first Barbie wasn't like pregnant Barbie, you know? Yes. Cooking that's in true. the kitchen or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it could have been because like the other, the other, uh, you know, play patterns that children were the little girls were encouraged to, to engage in were that, you know, here's your baby doll playhouse. Here's, you know, your play kitchen. Here's your, that's what little girls were encouraged to do. You wouldn't, you know, little girls would not have had cowboy sets and doctor sets and, and, you know, cars and, and army men, like they would have had pretty much baby dolls and dress up clothes that encouraged them to be, wives and mothers. So Barbie definitely like opened some doors and pretty early on, like the first career Barbie dolls came, she was introduced, like I said, in 1959 and those first career Barbie dolls, fashion designer Barbie and one who was literally in the early days just called career woman Barbie who had like a briefcase. <laughs> I'm like, you, you go do that career Barbie. Um, you know, these dolls were coming around in the, in the early 1960s. So again, she's complicated. There are yeah. And and her whole history has been that way on through today. I could not love the video content that she's putting out there more, but it is a challenge when you like then see her in the stores and you're like, oh man, but you're you still just are an alien who's pretending to be a woman. Like your body is still like so unrealistic, and that's something that children like you know again studies show unconsciously download as, like, the way a woman should be. So it's complicated. Well, you know what, like, else is... You know what else I don't like are those stupid Bratz dolls. Those are the worst. The Bratz dolls are the worst. <laughs> I, I don't know. And again, like, I'm a doll lover, and a do- like, I, like I said, I, I have a very deep connection to the American Girl brand and those dolls. I love them so much. I'm not even going to lie to you. There's a new American Girl doll who came out this year. I'm, like, a little bit bummed because she's, her year is 1986, which is the year I was freaking born, and so I'm very disturbed that she's a historical doll, like, everyone can just... What's her name? What's her story? Her name is Courtney. 
she lives in California and she's like really into like video games. Oh she has she comes with like a, a like a, a Miss Pac-Man like, you know, arcade game. She also oh. likes Care Bears, I assume the because like, Mattel- what's Pac-Man? And they are. It's very depressing, but I'm not even going to lie to you. I definitely as soon as I heard she, she also she's blonde with curly hair just like the texture of my hair and I definitely immediately upon finding out that she existed like called my mom and I was like so for Christmas I'm gonna need this doll (laughs) (laughs) I'm a I'm a doll lover I I my mom collected Madame Alexander dolls for me when I was a kid my grandmother um you know made these incredible porcelain dolls that I still have in my in my childhood bedroom but Bratz dolls are a Bratz doll has never entered my home. They are just like, I don't know, like, and also I guess it's an age thing too. Like we were a little, you know, older by the time they came out, I guess, but they were the worst. Well, but just to think that we grew up with American Girl dolls, these super wholesome yeah. dolls. I mean, they, you can't really say they were diverse, but they had different socioeconomic statuses. They, they did. They were from different states. They did. Different upbringings. They did. <laughs> and to be fair, over time, the dolls have become more diverse. You know, the yes. first three dolls were absolutely whitey white white dolls. Like they their names were Samantha, Samantha. Parking. Yeah, so that's what I, I played the two one. of these three dolls. Samantha Parkington, the waspiest name in the world. Kirsten Larson, the immigrant, and I'm putting quotations around immigrant because she I mean she was very much an immigrant, but of course they choose like a blonde, blue eyed immigrant from Sweden. And then Molly McIntyre. Oh Molly, I forgot yeah. about Molly. And again, a, a super like waspy you know, name there. Um, it wasn't until the and the, and the fourth doll too, because the fourth doll was Felicity Merriman, who yep. was the Revolutionary War doll. It wasn't until the fifth doll that we got a doll of color, and of course, like she was a slave, which is not exactly thinking outside the box. However, <laughs> Addie, Addie Walker. By the way, for the record, Addie Walker's books are the most like harrowing books and most beautifully written books. All all of them are great. Valerie Tripp who wrote Samantha's books um, and Molly's books, um, a lot of the books, actually, has become a friend, and, and, and she's oh, cool. such a, she's amazing and such a beautiful, beautiful writer. I mean, it's a brand that I feel so passionately about because, like, they have, be- because it's such an empowering brand, and in more, more recent characters are more diverse. Nenea is um, a, an Asian-American doll in, during... Um, during the bombing at Pearl Harbor in the 1940s. Um, Melody is another African-American doll who's in the 1960s who wants to be a part of Motown and is part of the civil rights movement. Oh, how cool. Yeah, Ivy and Julie. Ivy is Asian, living in San Francisco. Julie is white. Um, there are others, and I'm forgetting, but there are, there, there, are, there are definitely more diverse stories that have been told over time as consumers have responded. That Kaya is a Native American doll. Um and I love that their stories are a part of who they are mm-hmm. and something that, like, if you play with the dolls, you probably know. And, they're, and they have, you know, problems that are legitimate problems that they are empowered to deal with. Like, mm-hmm. Samantha, even in her waspy, waspy white world, <laughs> she grows up next door to a servant girl who 
eventually becomes a victim of like essentially forced child labor and is working in a factory where she's being mistreated and not paid. And Samantha's response to this is to give a, she's in a speaking contest and rather than speaking about factories as she had originally planned, she speaks about how the children are being abused in factories and, you know, helps Nellie like escape this dire situation. And, and I think about that and the way like those stories affected me reading them as a child. And then I think about Barbie and like, she had no stories, you know, like the story I just told you about Barbie is a story that like most children who play with Barbies have never heard and is pretty flimsy, you know, well, and again. then the Bratz story is just be a brat. Yes. <laughs> It's like, the, worst. the worst thing ever. It's the worst. It's the worst. Because at least Barbie is like nebulous where you're like, I don't know. She's hot. <laughs> she's got yeah. good clothes. And it's... sometimes she's a pilot or a vet. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. like it, it is really interesting when you look at uh, the just the dolls throughout the generations because just even just, you know, like, like we we're saying with Barbie, sure, there was some controversial shit that Barbie did, but a lot of it was very empowering and it was teaching girls a good message other than a few bad instances and then American Girl Doll has taught lots of great messages as well as like tying in history so that they were learning yes. about American culture over yeah. the generations and then you just get yeah. freaking brats who's like let's teach our kids how to be pieces <laughs> of shit it's like how has this happened how are we digressing you know yeah. that's so weird um well I did have one other question about Ken do you yes. think that they brought Ken in because people were wanting a male in the story? Were people like oh, starting yeah. to get sick little and tired girls, of no, no men around? Little girls wrote in. That's exactly why Ken existed. <laughs> like okay. they had no they had no intentions or need for a boy doll, but like people, little girls all across the country were like, Barbie needs a boyfriend. Barbie needs to get married. Once yeah. and, and that was they, they, it's just like real life, right? Like when you're single, everyone's like, "So when are you, when are you gonna? Anyone right. special? Are you dating anyone special?" And so finally, Mattel's like, "Fine, she's dating someone special. This guy Ken with no balls." And by the way, this is interesting too. They originally designed Ken three. They designed three Kens. One was like fully flat, smooth Ken. One was, like, the Ken that we know with, like, directional lines or, like, underwear. Yeah. And then one was fully anatomical Ken with a penis. What? Oh, yeah. There was it a design. Was like, literally there? Yeah. There was a design that involved, like, a pretty graphic, like, <laughs> this is what's up. And they're like, well, it's obviously not this one. Oh, <laughs> it's my. not. Little girls, like, pull down his swim trunks. Like, <laughs> they're like, I am... I have seen some things. Um, but yeah, I think it's very much the what real what real women deal with when it comes to Ken. You know, the first step is like, are you seeing someone special? It's fine, fine. We gave it we gave him a boyfriend. But then girls started writing in like, So when is Barbie gonna get married? When is Barbie yeah. gonna have kids? When is this happening? And, you know, the uh, to their credit, Mattel has always opted for not that. Midge, one of Barbie has a lot of friends who come and go over the years. Midge, who was sort of the first friend, the redheaded friend, Midge had a wedding set that came out when we were kids in the 90s where she married her boyfriend Alan and Barbie was like maid of honor and Ken was there and like blah 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 so like in order to like help the story light out they did allow one of the dolls to get married after you know 30 years <laughs> people were begging for it it just couldn't be Barbie 
I know. I mean, and again, one of the first Barbies they introduced was Dream Wedding. So it's not mm-hmm. like... But yeah. Dream Wedding was early. Um, Solo in the Spotlight was also, though, one of the first Barbie dolls introduced. Solo in the Spotlight is um, a Barbie doll. She's blonde with the ponytail, and she wears a black strapless um, mermaid dress, and she comes with a standing microphone. The idea that she's, you know, some kind of sultry jazz singer and while Mm -hmm. this may not be you know the kind of career that is as empowering potentially as like a surgeon (laughs) she is a woman with a job obviously you know she has a microphone and she's saying something exactly you know so no shame in that game god what a fantastic story i love it that was so yeah. great. Thank you. Thank you. I it's love really telling just, it. It's so cool to just like learn, you know, the nitty gritty about something that many, I mean, majority of my listeners are like 25 to 40. So yeah. for the most part, they were all growing up with Barbies. So it's oh, just yeah. really, really cool to learn more about the history of the freaking Barbie. I mean, she's yeah. the icon of I mean, female toys. <laughs> She's she is. It. She is. She is. She's a lady that we've all held in our hands. Like, it's one of the, you know, like, if you were blindfolded, like, and, and someone put a Barbie in your hand, you would immediately know what uh-huh. it was. Absolutely. Well, hell yeah. That's so cool. And also, you're right. Perfect segue from my <laughs> story into yours, which, I mean, again, back to that, it's so true. Like, I feel like it's true in that, you know, there are probably not a lot of female aviators because it's just one of those male-dominated interests and hobbies and careers that is still male-dominated. Um, yep. And for whatever reason, I mean, I mean, it's also just possible that women are just like, I don't want to fly a plane. Like, <laughs> that's very, sure. very possible. Um, but I mean, I think it, other than maybe, you know, pilot Barbie, that would have been, like, the only time that a young girl would have been like, holy shit, look at Barbie, she's a pilot. Like, yeah. hey, maybe I might want to fly a plane. Yeah. But other than that, we didn't, we don't know anything about that kind of stuff. It was never something that we were, you know, given to consume or think about or wonder about. So that's super, super interesting. I think definitely for my my episode graphic, I'm going to find a pilot Barbie and feature her oh, yeah. alongside Jackie. I have to. Yeah. So good. There there are a few. There are a few. She's stylish when she's in her pilot ensemble. She looks good. <laughs> I bet. Oh my god, I love it. Well, that was so awesome. Thank you so much. You did a fantastic job. I <laughs> Thank literally you so much loved, for having me. loved learning about Barbie. That was incredible. Thank you so much. This was such a blast. I'm so glad we did this. That was a perfect cocktail pairing, too. I net Like, nice. that hot pink cocktail matched with our hot pink Barbie. I love it. So good. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, again, of thank course. you so much for joining. Um, that was a really, really awesome episode. I'm so excited our listeners get to know everything about Barbie's history. And Jackie. And Jackie. <laughs> okay. And other than Miss Piggy, we got our, our second fictional... Uh, female out there equally as powerful as miss piggy i will say and also (laughs) with an affinity for pink yes (laughs) exactly all right well thank you everybody for tuning in for another episode on the mimosa sisterhood podcast and be sure to hop onto the podcast next week we will have another everyday woman segment featuring a super super inspiring woman with a really awesome life story 
Um, And don't forget to subscribe so that you can receive all of our podcast episodes direct to your phone. And other than that, keep drinking lots of wine and empowering women. See you guys next week.